you have to imagine crazy things in order to take the next steps. It all begins with imagination. Welcome to What the If. It's great to have you back again. If you're a regular visitor to the What the If studios, you're already familiar with the place. So just head down to the to the bar area. Mm-hmm. Get yourself a drink. Open bar as usual. Yeah, get yourself a drink of open, you know whatever you want. It's there because it's imaginary. So what the if <laughs> I had a white Russian? Oh. There we there go. We go. Boom. My grandfather used to drink every day at 4 p.m. Jack Daniels on the rocks. Oh. All right. And therefore, I, whenever I was with my grandfather at 4 p.m., got a sip of Jack Daniels. Oh, nice. Which I don't think this was intention, but perfectly cured me of the desire to really ever drink Jack Daniels. <laughs> I'm sure that was his plan. It's a little bit gasolineish. Enjoy the bar. If you're new, come on in. We know it's a little chilly, but all studios are kept chilly. There is a rule I heard once, having sat in the audience of a number of comedy shows, I heard this rule that comedy is cold. Huh, I had not heard that. Yes, or cold is comedy. You'd rather have people cold than warm. That's probably true. I could accept that. Although it could be that if they're warm and they're warmed up, they might become violent and jump the stage. <laughs> this this okay, keeps, yeah, them, <laughs> keeps their metabolism down. All they can do is laugh. <laughs> Isn't that funny? If I had energy, I would jump up and hit. We have a great What the If this week. Very excited. Sent to us by Mitchell Share. One of our longtime listeners from Chappaqua, New York. It's a great place. Great, very beautiful place. And he says he 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 grew up as I did as well, a big fan of Arthur C. Clarke, the great science fiction writer. Arthur C. Clarke had a particular story. I don't know if he he published this story at the uh, holiday season time, but one could imagine he he did or or Amazing Stories or whatever magazine might have published this short story of Arthur C. Clarke's called The Star. It is a, I'm going to have to, this is a spoiler alert. I'm going to have to do a spoiler alert. Do I have to do it? No, let me not. Let me recommend, I mean, who am I to spoil Arthur C. Clarke? That's terrible. um, One of my favorite writers of all time. I can talk about the subject of it. It involves an astronomer. By the way, go read it. The Star, I'm sure you can find it. It's a great story. So I won't even go into depth about who the characters are, and particularly the main characters. Very short story, beautiful story. But basically, it's, let's say, an astronomer just ponders what was the source 
of the Star of Bethlehem story, the element of the Star of Bethlehem in the Christmas story, which even for, for those who don't know, we, we have listeners all over the world, sure. and we have plenty of listeners right here who perhaps never went to church <laughs> or learned enough of this. What is, what is let's, a real refresher? What, what is the Star of Bethlehem? So there's a, a vague reference in the, the New Testament to the, the moment when uh, Jesus is being born in Bethlehem. It said that there is a, a bright star in the sky above, above that town. And that is how the, uh, the so-called wise men, the magi from the east, find their way to him by following that star it, the star suddenly appeared well this is the, the story's kind of vague on it but yeah whether it's suddenly appeared or if it was just particularly bright is unclear and that's part of what is interesting right yeah. but something it's just a story perhaps but something must have changed to get their attention it wasn't like there every night and suddenly one day they were like hey you know that star that's always been there let's go there that is the implication yeah okay. something magical has happened obviously mm-hmm. supernatural what Mitchell asks is, are there other great legends, or myths, or religious stories, or not religious, but still had huge impact on the world, that also were started by possible uh, real astronomical events that may have occurred? Then, then the question becomes, what the if that really, could that happen today? Ah, okay. It's a good if. Mm-hmm. It's a good if. So the, the, just sticking with the Star of Bethlehem for a second, is there astro- astronomical, anything in the record that might indicate, it, it, in other words, to those of us who know anything about astronomy, mm-hmm. uh, fans of astronomy, it sounds like a, no, a supernova or something. Yeah, so this is an, an interesting thing that people like to do with, say, stories from the Bible, which is try to figure out some natural physical event that matches the, the event in the story. People are like, okay, well, the, the Red Sea was parted, Maybe that was an earthquake, and then they'll check geological records to see if there was an earthquake at around that time. I always I find this an interesting project because it's not really clear to me what the the takeaway of the story is supposed to be. So there's there's a couple of different kind of conclusions people like to draw. So one one group of people say, Okay, if we can find that there was an earthquake near the time the Israelites were escaping Egypt, that shows that Exodus is true because we have sort of independent confirmation that something like that could have happened. Another group of people say the fact that there was an earthquake at the same time shows us that Exodus is not true because people just mistook this natural event for a supernatural one. And, and speaking of which, 
<laughs> we would assume that if it was an earthquake, the parting of the Red Sea, that that means there was a tsunami, perhaps. And as we know, right before a tsunami, you do get a bizarre phenomenon of the water, yeah, water back. suddenly yeah, so receding. But had they walked, had the Israelites walked onto that beach, they were in for a rude surprise after that. Would have been a really bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's this. So what I find interesting is that people across the spectrum of religious belief find this an interesting project to do. That is, come up with a, a scientific analog or equivalent to these miraculous events. And that everybody feels that that supports their point of view. It's interesting. I, I would say maybe I fall in the middle or somewhere more on the agnostic side, which is like, it's just, what the thing I love about it is that, oh, isn't it fascinating to see how people may have interpreted things that we now understand from, you know, more, more scientific point of view. Like, it's kind of cool to imagine that, you know, imagine if suddenly you saw, let's say a tsunami wiped out your enemy, you know, it's kind of cool to imagine that, well, that was God on your side. Yeah, that's right. And that's, uh, and it would be hard to persuade someone that that was not the case, right? You're like, what are the odds that a tsunami is just going to come in and wipe out exactly the people who hate me? That seems, that's, that's pretty good evidence that God loves you. Until you stub your toe. Uh, well, that's a whole other story. Yeah, and on we, a tree, we, and the tree falls on you. We have to switch books from Exodus to Job if we want to do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so the Star of Bethlehem's been a, a traditional one in which people try to figure out, could there have been something in the sky that, as you say, was unusual around the time that Jesus was born? And then, and like, and we can we can talk about sort of what what people, uh, what conclusions people want to draw from that. And I think one of the uh, one of the reasons this is a particularly good one is that astronomers are really good at figuring out what the night sky would have looked like at sort of any time you pick. Ooh. Like if you ask an astronomer, when's the next time that Jupiter will be visible at sunrise, they will sit down with the equations, they'll crank it out, and they'll tell you it's March 23rd, 2034, or whatever, right? And those equations go both ways in time. So if you ask them, uh, if you ask an astronomer, what did the night sky look like on Tuesday, April 8th, 1642, they can tell you. They can draw you a perfect picture. In fact, you can even do it on your phone these days. Uh, nowadays, yeah, that's right. The, the, the computing power is so cheap that <laughs> you can do this very easily. Or using apps like Starry Night or you know, astronomy apps, you can dial the date back to date forward. You can dial the calendar really? forward or backward. Yeah. You know, there's an anecdote along these lines of when uh, Neil Tyson, the astronomer, saw Titanic and there's a there's a night sky scene as the boat is sinking and he looks and he says that's not what the night sky would look like on the night that the Titanic sank 
And the, the reason he can have such confidence in that is because the laws of astronomy are so precise and so regular. And James Cameron actually changed the, the night sky for the DVD release, as I recall. Very yeah. cool. So there's, uh, so here's where we get into kind of an epistemological puzzle. Okay. Uh, epistemology meaning uh, how we know things. Mm, mm, how we so know things. Okay. The philosophical branch of philosophy deals with how we, how we know things. So when we do something, when we say something like, I wonder what the night sky looked like according to astronomy, on the night Jesus was born, there's two ways we can approach the problem. One is to say, we know what day Jesus was born on, and we plug that into the computer, and it spits out what the night sky looks like. Another is to say, we're not really sure exactly what day he was born on. So instead, let's use our equations to find an interesting event in the sky around that time and set that day to be the day of Jesus' birth. Or even more complicated, it's a certain number of days, like however long it took the wise men to get there. Uh, that would be another way of doing it, right? Yeah, because, because the problem is that we don't actually know where they came from, so that's a, a trickier thing. Although I realize, actually, I assume what the story is implying is that the star lighting up happened at the moment he was born. Maybe if you, the story is, this is, this is an extremely vague passing reference. Oh, really? Uh, which is wow. not a great start to a scientific investigation, right? So, so you, have to make, you have to make a number of assumptions. So as far as the wise men go, you might say, all right, if they're, they're magi, they're supposed to be coming from someplace like Iran or Persia at the time it would have been. So that would have taken weeks. So does that mean uh, the star was visible for weeks because they had to uh, start their journey before the, such that they would actually get there when Jesus was being born? These are, these are suppositions you have to add to the story. You would think that if it went out, they might run the other way. Like, whoa. That's right. Let's, we're out of here. <laughs> That's a bad sign. Because yes. a star lighting up is one thing. A star disappearing that would be really scary. Yeah, well, it could be. Yeah. yeah. So if you ask somebody who's interested in this project, what day was Jesus born on? What are they probably going to say? Well, Christmas, December 25th would be the mm -hmm. day. But right. the year is, I was just thinking right now, the year is confusing because does that make that year zero? Well, so this is, this is, so this is why I think one of the interesting things here is that it seems like this should be an easy question to answer. But it's not in any sense. We're absolutely certain that Jesus was not born on December 25th. Because the calendars have been changed since. Yeah, well, there's, there's no reason for that. So Christmas gets celebrated on December 25th, not because people think that's the day Jesus was born, but because that was the start of Saturnalia back in the Roman days. Uh, what is Saturnalia? Oh, Saturnalia was the uh, Roman uh, winter solstice festival. That was sort of this this huge orgy of sex and alcohol and licentiousness that would run for a few days every year. And that becomes Christmas. That's right. So this is actually this is a traditional thing that colonizing religions do is you take one of your religions and you celebrate it on the same day of as a major holiday of the religion you're trying to replace. So then whenever people are having a party, they're like, oh, well, they're not celebrating Saturnalia. They're celebrating Christmas. And then you gradually own that date for your religion instead of theirs. 
were the first Christmas parties orgies? Yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. Wow. Right? And that all that said, Christmas was not a particularly important holiday until fairly recently. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah, it's uh, even in the in the Christian religion, it was not an important holiday. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's just one more feast day. Easter was the big holiday until 18th, 19th, 20th century. Oh, uh huh, right, right, right. We're quite sure that December 25th is not the date, so we can't act. So it's not a good idea to just crank our astronomical calendar back 2018 years to December 25th, because there's no reason to think that. Um, but what you might do is say, well, uh, how about I, I just look through the whole year, 2018 years ago, and see if there's an interesting phenomena in the sky that would have been visible from Israel? Okay. Okay. That also gets complicated because we're also pretty sure that Jesus was not born in the year one. Yeah, that would, if suddenly it was the year one, people would be people like, would notice, right? Some, yeah. Something's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but what? But we have all, they had all year, you know, it's like, it's year one. <laughs> oh, but then all year nothing happens. So that, you know, this is, this is good writing by. <laughs> the Lord that they go all year. It's like year one, and they're like something, something, right? And yeah, it gets into the middle of December, and people are like, "Nah, eh, I don't know. It's just year one." <laughs> and then all of a sudden, boom, supernova in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> so I say this problem, exactly what year Jesus was born in, is realized very early on. It is a problem, uh, very early on in in Christian civilization, I suppose. The New Testament, the the Christian Bible is not forthcoming on precise dates. What you have to do is take historical events and figures that are mentioned in the Bible and try to correlate them with other calendars like Roman histories and such and try to infer uh, when these events must have happened. Okay, so this is a whole academic discipline for a good thousand years. Oh really? Wow. Of trying trying to figure out when when the when the various events in the Bible happened in terms of our modern calendar, you know, 35 BC or whatnot. So for a thousand years people were actually interested we're trying, in this. Trying to figure this out. Yeah. Which very, thousand years is that? Oh, essentially from say fall of the Roman Empire through the Renaissance. There's a great book on this by um, Tony Grafton, who's the name of the book is escaping me at the moment. But this turns out to be, this is a really difficult project to do. And one of the weird things that happens is that, so the best guess, like I said, by the, the late Renaissance, is that Jesus was born in 4 BC. Because that's, the, that's sort of the only year that matches up with things like Herod being alive at a certain time and a census being taken. And it's complicated because Judea is a backwater that nobody really bothered keeping good records for at the time. So the, the data we have is, is pretty fragmentary. If we're willing to accept that, then 
then maybe we can say, all right, so sometime in the middle of 4 BC, let's see if there was an interesting event in the sky. But I think it's important to, to, to think about how many layers of inference and supposition we've already got going on here. Yeah, and let's just point this out, that this is something I think that everyone, everyone listening who has a sense of the scientific process or, you know, is really interested in logic and, and understands things, it kind of gets the drift of all this. But I think outside of that frame of mind, let's say the non-scientific person, they don't they don't understand that concept that when you step you make one assumption you've already done something pretty extreme about getting away from the actual probable truth of your thing that you're searching for and if you take 10 steps away it's like it's ridiculous at that point I, I yeah i mean you got to you got to be aware of what it is you're actually doing right so we've certainly departed from the notion that we're exactly calculating some event. Uh, so then, the, so assuming we are willing to to take those steps, then you want to say something like, "All right, so what is the event? What, what kind of astronomical event would have attracted this attention?" And one of the first guesses is usually what's called a conjunction. Oh, okay. So a conjunction, if like you look it up in the dictionary, it'll say when the planets are close together in the sky. See, I was thinking of Schoolhouse Rock. Oh, conjunction, junction? Yeah, yeah. conjunction, junction. What's your function? Mm -hmm. Turns out the function is to guide the wise men from Persia. So, <gasps> yeah. Yes. <laughs> so if you kind of imagine in your head Jupiter and Saturn and Mars being like right on top of each other, that would be pretty impressive. That would be a, a, a big, it would look like a big star. So you'd say, okay, that might be sufficient. So then you tell your computer to calculate, is, was there a conjunction around the 4 BC? And it turns out that conjunctions aren't quite as interesting as we would hope. Right. I'm guessing they don't, they're not in the same plane exactly. They're, they're not actually on top of each other. So if they're within a few degrees of each other in the sky, we call that a conjunction because that's unusual, right? So it's worth, it's worth mentioning. But there's no sense that they're like merging with each other. So conjunctions are only impressive if you're a dedicated sky watcher and you know that that's not where Jupiter usually is, but it is this time. Well, the, yeah, the other thing is you would see it coming for months. Yeah, exactly. Right. You would have <laughs> there would be no surprise element. And certainly no shepherd in the Galilee is going to look up and say, oh, my God. God, that's amazing. There must be extra something extraordinary happening. They would just look up and say, oh, well, that's, that's kind of pretty, I guess. Although you're alone out in the middle of the night. I don't know. Do you, do you take your sheep out in the middle of the night? I guess. Maybe. Uh, yeah, you've got to be out there in the middle of the night to guard Working late. some things. Yeah. You might have revelations, mm -hmm. you know, and so it's possible. But... But a, this three, not a, three a conjunction is not a likely uh, stimulus for right. In fact, it might, be, it might be important for the story, by the way. It's interesting, just from a writing point of view, that it's mm -hmm. three wise men, yep. which is enough to say, you know, when we hear about UFO reports, for instance, 
if one person says they saw something, well, kind of interesting, maybe. If two people, yeah, okay. Three people, that's like starting to get... It's like three makes a pattern or, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, yeah. that must be real. Three people saw it. Yeah, I'll buy that. And one of the, I think another angle on the wise men story would be that if the wise men were astronomers, they could predict a conjunction in advance and know that something interesting is going to happen on that day. Also, their wise men, by the way, I, should, I just note, is an appeal to authority. That is exactly right. Yep. And I should say foreign authority, too. Right. They are from the east. Ah, ah, ah. Which is supposed to be a, a, at least is implied as a center of learning and, you know, exotic wisdom or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. But it's not like a conjunction hovers over a town, much less a particular manger. Right. The stars just move across the sky every night. Right. Right. They rise, they set, they rise, they set. Which all comes down to the idea that it must have been brief. It's sudden. Uh, yes, that's right. So if, if so, if we're ruling out a conjunction, then we want something like a nova or a supernova because those do appear suddenly on the sky and can be quite bright and impressive. They, unfortunately, also do not sit in one place in the sky, but as the Earth rotates, they'll move across. So oh, the, the kind of... Yeah. You know, yeah. The, the image we always want to have from the you know, the Christmas pageant that the star kind of hovers over Jesus doesn't work if we want it to be an astronomical phenomenon. Ah, just doesn't hover. I'll be honest, right up until this moment, I was just always went with the supernova idea. Yeah. Because that sounds right. But you're right, of course, a nova, it's just a, it's a new star. It just moves <laughs> with all the other stuff. Yeah. So maybe it's moment of first visibility was in the moment it was above Bethlehem. True, that would, yeah. That would be kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. So supernovae uh, leave behind remnants, generally. So again, you can crank back your, your calculator and say, where in the sky should we look for such a thing? But it assumes you know the moment you're looking for. And as we talked about, you have to make lots of assumptions in order to do that. Sometimes you get a supernova remnant, sometimes you don't. But if you don't know where you should be looking... That's kind of moot. Just regular novae don't often leave stuff behind, so that's kind of tough. So other options would be a comet. Oh, right. Because they're they're bright and spectacular. Same kind of problem that they don't appear uh, all at once, but they kind of creep across the sky from night to night in addition to rotating for for any given night. And it would take a long time for it to become visible. They don't just sort of appear. Yeah. So comets are usually good uh, to associate with impressive historical events because of that. So like they're, they're good harbingers of war or plague or something because they spend a long time creeping across the sky so they can bother you and you wonder, oh, what, what does this mean? can really have a good time. And I must yeah. say, if you remember when uh, the comet Hale-Bopp visited, mm-hmm. was that the 90s, I think? Yeah. Right? And that was actually the first, actually maybe the only comet I have seen with the naked eye. We 
drove out, out of the city. We drove up to the Hudson Valley where it was reasonably dark and looked up. And yeah, there it was, like this comet. I must say, it was, <laughs> I totally got why <laughs> civilizations would freak out because it's really weird. These, it's an extremely, a large comet is an extremely impressive thing. And it doesn't look like anything else in the sky. So if you haven't seen one before, it's worthy of a little freak out. Let's jump forward mm -hmm. because it, t talking about a comet coming now. It's interesting that, again, something I hadn't quite thought about, but that one thing science has done, not only has it had its effect on religion's role in sort of explaining the world around us, perhaps, the physical world at least, we no longer look, uh, aside from astrology, which is a whole other thing, and I refer you back to our very popular, it still remains one of our most popular shows, our show on astrology. Uh, go to whattheif.com, check it out, uh, or just look back in your podcatcher there for the earlier episodes. Astronomical events don't really have a major impact on civilization. Not in this sort of sense, right? Because we've decided that the right explanation for celestial phenomena are physical ones. And I should say that doesn't preclude a layer of supernatural significance to it as well. So like Newton, for instance, you know, he's the one who figures out the laws of gravity and motion by which comets move. But he also thinks that comets get sent in by God to kind of tweak the stability of the solar system now and then. Really? Yeah. So he has it, he has it both ways. That is so cool. <laughs> That's one of the coolest, strangest things I've ever heard about Newton. And I know there's a lot of strange things about him. So <laughs> <laughs> Because one of the things he realizes, or he thinks he realizes, from his system is that the solar system is would be unstable over long periods of time, like Jupiter's gravity would eventually nudge the Earth out of its own orbit. So over the course of tens of thousands of years, the solar system should not be stable, but it is, right? You, you can look and see. So his solution to this was God tweaks it every now and then, but it's not like it's not like a Monty Python finger of God that comes in and pushes the Earth back into orbit. But rather, God is such a good mathematician that he calculates exactly where a comet should go so its tiny gravitational pull will nudge the Earth back to where it's supposed to be. Wow. So, sort of, uh, God is exceptional at, as he, she should be, uh, at orbital dynamics. Yep, exactly. So, did he, is, that's not in the Principia Mathematica, I assume. Where, where, where is that? It's not in the Principia. It's in his personal correspondence in his later book, uh, The World. Huh. Very cool. Um, yeah, but it happens. It's, it's, an, it's an early part of his reasoning about the stability of the solar system. And then he and Gottfried Leibniz have a, uh, a long feud about this as well. Oh, so Leibniz says, no, it's not God. So Leibniz says... That <laughs> says to Newton, what kind of a crappy god do you have <laughs> right. that has to fix his solar system every now and then? A little tune-up. 
Genesis he says, you know, the idea that God has to wind up his watch. Mm. That's that's a, that's a terrible God. God should surely be able to f- see all these things ahead of time. And Newton says, no, it's your God that's crappy because your God doesn't do anything. <laughs> he just he just creates the universe and does nothing else. Uh, he says, Newton says, my God is way better because he's actually involved, right? He's paying attention to what's happening and he fixes things. This, this is called the Leibniz-Clark correspondence because Newton doesn't actually write the letters himself. He writes through his friend, Samuel Clark. But this is, this is a great piece of 18th century scientific theology. What does that mean he writes through his friend? Newton, let's see here. Newton decides early on in his life that he doesn't like being directly involved with controversy. So instead, he gets proxies, his friends, to have the arguments for him. So we have letters between Newton and Clark, and then between Clark and Leibniz. And this happens a lot. So Clark is just the mouthpiece for for Newton's ideas during this argument. Fascinating. I wonder if Clark is related to Arthur C. Clark. I do not know. <laughs> it's possible. Actually, I think we, we probably would have heard about it, but yeah, who probably. knows? And I should say Darwin, is... Darwin does the same thing, actually. Really? Darwin, Darwin doesn't like having arguments with people. So he has friends who have the arguments for him. Now, this is the equivalent of basically Reddit. <laughs> Anywhere <laughs> on the internet where people just put in a pseudonym, a fake name, and, you know, cause, so they can argue and maintain their purity as a human in the outside world. Wow, that's pretty interesting. So did Newton see any comment? Did he see Halley's Comet? Or? Yes, you would have seen Halley's Comet um, as a young man. And so he thought, oh, so he was young, so maybe he hadn't developed his ideas yet. No, it was right around the, the same time. Um, so this is an important thing, is that Newton's argument is not one from ignorance. He's not saying, because we don't understand comets, they must have come from God. He's saying, we understand comets really, really well. And the fact that we understand them well gives us an understanding of why God sent them in. Wow, that's interesting. Right? So, so Newton just took God as a, a given. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't using that as an, like Einstein, and this is something people are fascinated by. They always want to know. Yeah. When I, when I mentioned that I did the biography of Einstein or whatever, people will say, uh, oh, was he religious? Like, they want, it's strange that mm-hmm. one of the first things people want to know is, did Einstein believe in God? And it's a little difficult because Einstein used God. He spoke of God a lot and used it in poetic terms. Yeah, but often in this metaphorical, pantheistic kind of way. Exactly. Um, No, Newton's God is a a very embodied Christian one. And uh, so Newton spends many years in intense religious devotion. Like when, when he's a young man, he makes a list of his sins and we still have the notebook in which he writes these things. Whoa. And I, and I should say some, I mean, some of them are not very interesting. It's like eating an apple on Sunday and like, all right, whatever. But then if you keep reading, you get to things like threatening to burn his mother to death. Whoa. Okay. Like, wow, that's a little more interesting. Yeah. Wow. I always knew he was intense. So Newton spends more time writing theology than he does 
working on physics, astronomy, and math combined. Perhaps it was best that he had his friends write his letters. <laughs> I'll burn you to death. Um, wow, that that's incredible. So, at decision, because I'm wondering at what point is there what might be the last astronomical event that really caused a major. It's hard to say. So these things often get done after the fact. True. Right. 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 People look back on historical events and say, oh, yeah, wasn't that about the time of the Great Comet? And people say, oh, yeah, that's right. Yes. So, you know, there's comets during the Napoleonic Wars. Right. People say, oh, OK. All right. So Great Wars, Great Comet. All right. That's kind of cool. Let's do this. There's a nova in the constellation of the Eagle during 1918. And that's important because the Eagle was the symbol of Imperial Germany. So during the last year of World War I, people were like, ah. Now, whether uh, exactly what level of significance people attached to that in 1918 is harder to say. I don't know if too many people thought, oh, this is a sign that Germany is going to win the war, so we should stop fighting. You know, people are people are reflective about it as a as a metaphor for other things. It's sort of like people today still say that's a sign. Yeah, it's like a sign or something. It's it's not actual direction. Now, actually, I just remembered though, being of Hale Bob. There was that bizarre, there was a cult. Uh, yeah, you think of the Heaven's Gate? Heaven's group? Gate, right? Where they all, they all killed they themselves. Commit suicide, yeah. So if you're interested in that, I, I recommend you go read uh, the book written by my friend Ben Zeller, that's Z-E-L-L-E-R, who happened to be in contact with the Heaven's Gate people. He's a scholar of new religious movements. He was in contact with the Heaven Gate, Heaven's Gate people before they killed themselves. Whoa. He was essentially the only person on the ground who sort of knew all the people involved and understood their theology and their ideas. So it's a fascinating book. You should go read that. Wow. Did he know they were going to do that? No. Oh, wow. Just one day they were slow in responding to emails. Whoa. Whoa. So there is, and and I I think this points to the fact that, uh, like I said, I talked about astronomical events that affect civilization and whether that happens now or not, there's always going to be small groups, you know, who... That's right, who have, think differently. Have that's, yeah. So, I mean, one of the reasons that we, we have this idea that astronomical events are associated with great moments in history are because, like I said, it's done post hoc. Sometimes, you know, you go looking for the great comet and sometimes you just insert things. So, for instance, in one of the Gospels, uh, when Jesus dies on the cross, it says that there's a great darkness. So people say, oh, well, that must have been a total eclipse. And again, astronomers are really good at predicting when total eclipses are. So they say, all right, so let's find a, a total eclipse in Jerusalem at about that time. The problem is that it's actually physically impossible for there to be a total solar eclipse at the end of Passover, uh. which is when, right? It is, it is actually not, by, by definition, 
uh, the moon is in the wrong place on Passover for there to be an eclipse. Because <laughs> it's a full moon. So it has to, so that's a completely non-physical event. So this used to just be a thing. When you were writing a historical record about exciting events, you would stick astronomical phenomena in because it was cool. So you get eclipses when Alexander the Great is born and you have stars disappearing when the Buddha is born, right? These are, these are standard tropes that get added later. I didn't know that stars disappeared when the Buddha was born. There's lots of cool stuff that happens when the Buddha's born. Elephants show up and do little dances, and there's great. Well, that's dogs. particularly interesting, just because I want I did another Arthur C. Clarke story that has a little bit of a religious uh, ten, ten billion names of God. Yeah, the nine bi- nine billion names of God. I think it is. Just look that up. Nine billion names of God. I'll, I'll just this is no spoiler, but it begins with IBM engineers working on a (laughs) I don't know what happened there well that was (laughs) it's related to the nine billion uh, let's just say for our our listeners I will have edited it out by the time you're hearing this but uh, as soon as we started speaking of the Arthur C. Clarke story the nine billion names of God (laughs) our connection ended Skype cut us off coincidence it's a sign yeah, it's a sign. Anyway, it's a great story about these IBM computer engineers who've been hired by a, I believe, Tibetan monastery to calculate, use their computers to calculate and print out. Mm-hmm. This was not a very eco-friendly story, I imagine, because they had to print out <laughs> the nine billion names of God, and uh, that might cause things to happen or not who knows excellent story the nine billion names of god so um cool yeah so so go read those arthur c clark stories uh the the star and nine billion names of god and think about this uh intertwining of history and religion and astronomy right and i will say you know it's still this is one thing i realize is very common the sun coming out, for instance, is probably one of the most common things that people say with kind of believing, but just kidding, but not really. Uh, for instance, you know, on, more than once, I think I've been at a funeral where it was raining and the sun came out mm-hmm. at one point. And so people pointed to that. And uh, so it brought them comfort, I guess. Also reminds me of. Our current president, when he was speaking, there is some controversy about whether it was raining or not. But it, yes, it, right. it was important to him. So he saw it as a sign that it, it was raining, but then the sun came out as he was speaking. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's some people that hang on that. Yeah. This sense that the events in the sky have a, a connection to events here on the ground is still very powerful. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also, some, and I'm just remembering also, in, in a bad way, sometimes extreme bigotry, like uh, some religious fanatics will say that, oh, yes, like a, it's like, I guess it goes back to Sodom and Gomorrah, this disaster happened because the people in that city were immoral. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was retribution. So it does still happen, but it doesn't quite shake civilizations. 
No, not not much. And I think you would be hard pressed to find a situation in which any any civilization was actually shaken by astronomical events, but rather, like I said, they, they get they get added to the story later to make it more exciting. Oh, so you don't think? I mean, I guess the, the one the stories I've heard where I thought, oh, that really could have really happened and caused a great disaster would be when a king, you know, for instance, you have a basically a incredible strong man, a king or whatever, leading. Like, didn't this happen in China that there was a comet? That's right. Yeah. So Chinese astronomy is a little bit different, and they think. They think about it in different ways. So I think there probably are better examples from China than from the European tradition. So if it was something that depended on the will of a single person or the mood of a single person, like, a, you know, a strong ruler, then if he decided to attack somebody or not attack somebody or, or whatever, he could be influenced by that. Actually, which reminds me, Nancy Reagan, when Ronald Reagan was president, we learned that I guess after the fact, oh, yeah, that's right. Nancy Reagan consulted, consulted an astrologer, and uh, I don't know who knows whether that had some effect for her. It must have had some effect mm-hmm. for her husband. I'm not sure. Yeah, if I remember right, it was it was suggested that she helped uh, make the presidential schedule based on that. Whoa. That is, who was allowed to meet with the president depended on these astrological things. Wow. So it, you know, so there may be still some there. It does still have some effect. Scientific literacy still has some way to go to penetrate the culture a little bit further. Uh, that is definitely true. But as we can see, the trouble, the, this, the, this, I'll just say this one thing to touch on the idea that ah, science in this particular case would be taking away something cool without replacing it with something. Although, for my mind, for, for, for my taste, actually, it replaces it with great comfort that. <laughs> You can see a great comet and not believe that the world is about to end. Yes. <laughs> Actually, that is a plus. Yep, that's right. Don't be worried. Don't sweat the big stuff. <laughs> Don't that's good advice. Sweat. Yeah, yeah it's, it's astronomical. Don't sweat it. Well, Mitchell, thank you very much. And Mitchell had a further question, which is, what would happen if something like this did change something? But I think what we learned here is that it actually, like you said, that these things were generally written into the past. Yeah. And there, as a legend is written down. Print the legend, as they say. So thank you very much for sending that in. Mitchell, this was a very exciting... This is our little, this is our What the If holiday episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it puts you in the Christmas spirit. Yeah. You know, good science puts me in a good spirit all the time. So that's all. That's all there. Subscribe to our show. If you want a miracle, if you want to see a miracle happen, let me tell you something. Subscribe to this show and boom, without you doing anything from the sky, our new episode will drop right into your iPhone or other listening device. Just like that. Boom. Automatically. It's very easy. If you want to subscribe, all you have to do is it takes two seconds. Go to whattheif.com and click the word subscribe and you will get a page that shows all the different kinds of devices you might be using, just click the one you want. iTunes or whatever, Google Play. Boom. Click that. You're done. You subscribe. We are on Twitter at What The If Show, where we are approaching 20,000 followers. That's amazing. By the time Christmas rolls around, we will have 
perhaps done that. And a lot of just there's so many great things that people are sharing. We're getting complaints about our believing in global warming, so that's always fun. Mm-hmm. That's a good sign. Yeah. Stand up to those folks. Send us your ideas, feedback at whattheif.com, just like Mitchell this week, just like Amira last week, just like Mike the week before that. And we have some great ones coming up. We do. Really some fabulous ideas coming up in weeks ahead. If you write in, and Mitchell, you will get this this week. We, if we take your idea and run with it on what the if, you get a finger puppet Woot. from the unemployed. Again, it'll drop from the sky. Mm-hmm. Wherever your mailbox is placed. A drone, maybe. <laughs> from Amazon will drop a finger puppet right onto your finger. From the unemployed Philosophers Guild, philosophersguild.com, makers of smart, funny toys for smart, funny people like you, super ifers out there so send us your ideas feedback at whattheif.com send us your ideas or on twitter at what the if show matt thank you very much anything exciting coming up this week your book be out in may book will be out in may so very exciting so that that could be that's a little bit late for easter and we don't do gifts at easter yeah so just as well a spring gift Mm -hmm. yeah wonderful and just the title again People will. Einstein's War. Ooh, that's a great title. Yeah. I'll let you know when it's uh, spiable. <laughs> okay, awesome, fantastic. So between now, now uh, and next week, you know the uh, I don't know. I don't, there's no planets that are going to be coming into conjunction. However, the solstice is approaching. So uh, that is correct. I have been checking. There, someone has been posting pictures from Stonehenge, an ancient astronomical and religious device in England, as the sun gets closer to the heel stone, marking the solstice. We cannot help but look at that and scream, What, what the, the is? Is, is, is.